0: Welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. And this weekend, the end of the liturgical year, is the celebration of Christ the King, that Christ is the cosmic King, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is what the Book of Revelation says about Christ the King, the end-time judge, that everybody will be judged by him, Christian, non-Christian. Christ is the judge of all. So why did Pius XI in 1925 proclaim the universal feast of Christ the King? It was right after the First World War had ended and the killing hadn't stopped. The Bolshevik Revolution had swept away Russia. There were show trials of monks and priests, Catholic and Orthodox. in in the Soviet Union. And the church couldn't stop it. The Western powers wouldn't stop it. It was brutal. More people were killed in Stalin's gulag than in all the Nazi death camps. Nazism is rightly condemned. Mostly in the West, the leftist Stalinists have gotten a pass. Very little analysis of the horrors of the gulag. So... Why would Pius XI do something which seemed so ill-suited to take on the challenges of the bloody 20th century? Pius XI had in his sights nationalism. Nationalism is where you and I identify as Americans or French or Germans or English or Russians or whatever it was. The West, as you know, exported it to Africa and the Middle East, A lot of the problems of the Middle East are caused because after the end of the World War I, the British Empire and the French, I think, cut up the Middle East into Lebanon um, and to Iraq and Palestine and Egypt, uh, took essentially uh, tribal cultures along with uh, caliphates that had come out of the Middle Ages and tried to impose a European view of nationalism on them. Along with nationalism was secularism, the idea that if you really wanted peace, then you would get religion out of government. And so only the Soviet Union, I think, uh, probably the Nazis were officially atheistic. The United States, France, and England aren't officially atheistic. They are probably just practicing atheists at that level. But the problem of secularism is that it divorces the moral order from anything like um, a divine moral order or a moral order that transcends whatever it is a legislature uh, does. We, of course, the United States have had huge knockdown dragouts drag-outs about this. Um, the war over slavery, the Civil War, the imposition of uh, prohibition, uh, where basically Methodists and Baptists tried to force uh, a view of temperance on everybody else. Uh, Abortion, which is much more like the slavery issue, uh, forced on everybody by Roe versus Wade, Uh, just a naked power grab to try to solve social problems through the exercise of power. But it's nationalism being enforced in a secular government that makes no reference uh, to larger moral connections between people. So why do you get a nation like ours, which is so firmly divided? Um, Well, what are our common traits? What is it that um, pulls us together? The two things that most Americans would agree to as fundamental virtues in America, or values is probably a better word, is liberty and equality. Liberty is the idea that I am personally free to practice my religion, to speak my mind. But it has grown to be: liberty is, I can do whatever I want as long as it's not illegal. And as legalities, like against drugs, pushes on my liberty, the big argument against it, against like... um, holding narcotics or marijuana to be illegal, is that I should be free to do what I want if it doesn't hurt anybody else. Can you really base a culture on that notion of liberty or equality? Um, Equality before God makes some sense, that God God sees, God judges, God understands. What does it mean in uh, a secular government, Uh, in a legal system well, there is one set of laws that govern everybody, but um, the, the sense of distrust in our country about who has power in the, in the just system depends on how much money you, hire, you have to hire how many lawyers you want to hire. Or equality in Congress, the presidency. Don't you think there's this tension that uh, the rich and the powerful really run this country as an oligarchy? I think the realities are much more complicated than that and i really do trust people in our institutions um, in large part to try to do what they understand that their job is given the context of um, this secular country with its restrictions however the sense of betrayal in our country is palpable and from every direction a sense of betrayal comes from the understanding that my country was supposed to deliver on certain promises It's supposed to be a particular kind of country but it's really not well what happens when your sense of totality is dependent upon what a government can deliver the point of christ the king in 1925 was that nationalism was trying to take the place of God. Secularism was trying to take the place of God. Communists and Nazis trying to take the place of God. And the question you can legitimately ask in the United States of America in 2021, at the end of this liturgical year, is whether for an increasing number of Americans, whether Democratic or Republican, has taken the place of God. The Feast of, Saint, of Christ the King, reminds us that we will be judged. So what about people who think that the secular world is a metaphysical claim? There's really nothing beyond this world. Well, one great survivor of the communists and the Nazis in Poland was a man named Czeslaw Milosz, who was a defector in the early 1950s, after him being a propagandist, basically, for the communist regime, as so many Polish intellectuals were. He wrote a book called The Captive Mind, I think 1952, and I read the book. And it's about the ability of totalitarianism to dominate the minds, even, even the most intelligent people. So when you hear the claim that if you go through the old Presbyterian schools, the old Puritan schools, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, there is just a mindset there of godlessness, where even belief is mocked simply as a default position, without ever really seriously engaging the long intellectual history of Christianity in the world. Well, what Milosh did was he wrote a book called The Captive Mind, and he described these friends of his that he had known, poets and writers, how each one in their own way became angry propagandists. Sometimes their life ended in suicide. Sometimes they ended up as honored people in Poland, but outcasts amongst their former friends because they just pitched the communist line. And the communist line was, this world is all that matters. There is no God, there is no judgment. There's just the party. The party is God. And here's what Cheslov Milos said about that, reacting to Karl Marx, as you might remember. Karl Marx said the opium of the people is religion. The idea is you'd put up with injustice because you knew at the end Jesus was going to judge everybody. And Marx just mocked that. This was Milosh's response to uh, Marx. Quote, a true opium of the people is a belief in nothingness after death. The huge solace of thinking that for our betrayals, greed, cowardice, murders, we're not going to be judged. That in the end, there is no justice. Wow, Christ the King, there is a judge. Let's see what that judge looks like. Let's listen to the gospels. So in the scripture readings today, In 1st Daniel, it's this prophecy about someone like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory. And the clouds of glory always refer back to the Old Testament, God's glory cloud that came down on the tabernacle in the desert, God's glory cloud that came down on Sinai, God's glory cloud that came down on the first temple that Solomon had erected. And so when The readings from Daniel and also from Book of Revelation refers to someone like the Son of Man. Remember, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Coming on the clouds. This is a metaphor, an image, for coming with the power of God. But this is the Gospel of John, chapter 18, the reading for this Sunday. Pilate said to Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own, or have others told you about me? Pilate answered, "'I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done?' Jesus answered, "'My kingdom does not belong to this world. If my kingdom did belong to this world, my attendants would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not here.' So Pilate said to him, "'Then you are a king.' Jesus answered, "'You say I'm a king.' For this I was born and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the most powerful words in the New Testament. Um, And so think about this. The great powers in first century Israel were the temple and the emperor, and both have set themselves against Jesus. All the powers of the world are trying to destroy them. We know how this ends. He's, he talked about his passion, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. That is a judgment on the powers of the world. It's why Christ is the cosmic king. But a couple of things I want to point out about this reading before I get to why how I think the rubber hits the road for you and me. So Jesus says to Pilate's question, um, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? Here's what he literally says. He says, my kingdom is not of this world, and my kingdom is not from this world. And so it's an ontological point. is how we look at it theologically. Onto- ontology, ontos is about being. What is existence in itself? What does it mean that you exist? You don't explain yourself. And the reason is because you had parents and they had parents and they had parents and they had parents. We are what are called contingent beings. There's always some reason why we exist independent of ourselves. We do not bring ourselves into being and absent some tragic misadventure, we don't take ourselves out either. We are here on borrowed time. And so ontologically, we would say that the world does not explain itself. And so for the Christian, logically, something, someone must be keeping it in being. That is not of this world. Something does not come from nothing. That is just a logical statement. Um, of, uh, of first principles. And everybody has first principles that you just have to accept on logic. And so when Jesus says, not from this world, not of this world, he's talking about something else, some other place else. But did you notice he also said, which I think is interesting, if it was of this world, my, my attendants, my servants, would be fighting for me. Remember, it's in the Gospel of, uh, of John, where Peter cuts off the high priest's servant's ear and Jesus puts it back on. So he did have guys in this world that were fighting for him, but that's not the kind of war that Jesus is involved in. So then it says, Pilate told him, then you are a king. And remember, we have no king but Caesar is what the crowd says when Pilate later introduces Jesus to the crowd and says, ecce homo, Behold the man, we have no king but Caesar, they all scream. Well, you say I'm a king, Jesus said. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. This is why Christians say that the truth is not a proposition, the truth is a person. You want to know what it means to be a human being, the truth about it, you look at who Jesus is. Materialism, naturalism, just the chemicals in your body are inadequate to explain what it means to be you. And so that this human being is going to come back and be the end time judge. Well, okay, we're Christians. We accept that. Um, what does that mean about how it is should we live our lives? So here's what I want you to consider in this next part. What does the role of faith, hope, and charity in your life really mean as your connection with God? And if you want to live a life of faith, hope, and charity, how does it look when you're trying to live a life of morality? What I would say is a life of virtue. Let's turn to that now. The dominant religion in our time is probably deistic, therapeutic moralism, the idea that there's a God, but he's like at a distance, that religion's supposed to make me feel good and I'll go to heaven if I am good. And the problem of, of half-truths, and these are not even half-truths, but it's something like that, is that they miss the completeness of what Revelation tells us. God isn't distant. We are the image and likeness of God. When we receive the Eucharist, we participate in the divine life. Religion isn't about feeling good. Hopefully it is a comfort and a solace. Saint Paul talks about that. However, at the core of religion is the cross. And Jesus says, unless you pick up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. You can't get to a therapeutic religion from anything Jesus has to say. And then the final part, and the part I really want to address this after this in this podcast, is moralism. Moralism is when you want to appear to be good, uh, at least on the surface of things. Um, it's what we think of as virtue signaling in the United States. When you jump on somebody else and you're very critical of what they did or the gang on Twitter gets on people, the idea is I am amongst the good people. I'm the picking up with the good people and I'm throwing rocks. Isn't it interesting how easy it is to find American culture in the Old Testament and the new with all the rock throwing going on? But virtue is something different than the moralistic thought that seems to characterize itself in our culture. Our culture is dominated by two really inadequate ideas about uh, morality. The first is called deontological ethics. It's uh, what about from being that you can come up with the rules of life just from observing the world. This is Immanuel Kant. But what it proposes is a morality that's just based on rules. And so when you think of morality like that, then you look at the Catholic religion and you see it through the narrow filter you're capable of seeing it through. This makes no sense of the sacraments. It makes no sense of our talking about virtue. It's why seeing morality merely as rules is inadequate. The second kind of morality that seems to dominate in America is that you do the act that is uh, calculated to achieve the greatest amount of good for the greatest amount of people. You know where you see that really big time is when you hear discussions about dropping those bombs in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And when that conversation comes up, Catholics will sometimes say, well, my dad was in that war. Those bombs uh, saved 1.5 million American lives and allied lives. And it probably did save a lot of allied lives. It devastated these, these two towns in, in Japan. But you see, there's a balancing act going on. It's okay to incinerate these people in these two cities, the little kids, the pregnant women, when we Catholics say abortion's wrong, and this is exactly what those atomic weapons did. But we justify it because there's a greater good to be achieved. We don't want to go beyond Nagasaki and Hiroshima with with that way of moral reasoning. Because if you do, then you get to abortion, which is it's okay to kill the child in your womb if a greater good can be achieved. Maybe it'll be the salvation of this uh, woman's career. Maybe she has too many kids. Maybe the child would be unloved. So it's okay to abort to achieve a greater good. Okay, this obviously is not Catholicism. But we've all heard these kinds of reasonings, either about rules or about the greatest good obtainable. Here's the Catholic understanding. You're called to live a life of virtue. Vir is a Latin word that means manliness. Men and women are called to all to be uh, exemplars of virtue. Uh, The Catechism says that virtue is this stable disposition, this habit of knowing the right thing to do in every situation. So when it comes to virtue, we're all learning. But it's something more than the rules, and it's something more than trying to do the greatest good. Ultimately, virtue is how it is that you look like Christ. So St. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. It really goes back into the Old Testament. Um, and in Deuteronomy, the way that virtue is talked about in the Hebrew language is found in Deuteronomy 10. Quote, What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. So why is it that Jesus asks the disciples to come follow him? To walk in the way of the Lord literally. Revelation, and this is ontologically, is God sitting down with his children and saying, This is how you do human. If it was just the rules, then the Torah would have been all we needed. But we know that St. Paul says something more is needed. If it was just doing the greater bit of good, So why didn't Jesus just give in to the temptation from Satan where he was offered all the kingdoms of the world to do with what he would? Because the greatest good in this world is not the greatest good as God looks at it. It's how it is that we follow and live like Christ. In our secular world, the only example that is capable of bringing meaningful change is love. And that is walking in the way of the Lord. Think about it. Faith, hope, and charity. Faith is about trust. You cannot learn from someone you do not trust. If you go to class and you're supposed to learn mathematics from a teacher and you're sitting there in second grade going, this lady knows nothing about what she's talking about. Two plus two does not equal four. What a moron. You can't learn anything. Hopefully nobody does that. If you look at Jesus like that though, the same human problem kicks in. Why Jesus is the exemplar, the example of virtue, how it is that we're supposed to live. Now it's true that Jesus has a lot more options than you do. However, what he promised you because he's God is that he will teach you and he will help you. And so from our faith comes our great virtue of hope. Hope is always about where this pathway leads because it leads to some dark neighborhoods and that you have to walk them with charity because faith and hope are nothing without charity. Love of God with all your heart, your soul, your being, love of your neighbor as yourself. So these three theological virtues which we're very used to hearing about Faith, hope, and charity are this link between the human soul, this link between the human soul and God. Uh, In the Old Testament, it was called righteousness. The word was zedekah in Greek because the Old Testament's written mostly in Hebrew, the new in Greek. You don't have exactly the same words. And so... Where zedekah is used for righteousness, right relationship, right connection. The closest Greek word in the Greek scriptures, especially the New Testament, was justice, which means uh, right relationship. Everybody gets what they're owed in this relationship. And so fundamental justice is because God is our creator, we owe God something. This is not a world that we get to run away with and do with what we want the fundamental problem of secularism and godlessness, uh, holding hands. Uh, Something very wrong with nation states that are so composed. But the other aspect of virtue is that it is an experience of divine life. So faith, hope, and charity direct us towards heaven, but In the catechism of the Catholic Church, in the long teaching of the Church, and it really goes back to ideas that are in the Old Testament, but that the Greek culture that took the Old Testament forward into the New Testament and preached in the Roman Empire in all points, north, south, east, and west, was uh, concepts of virtue that had come out of um, Greek Uh, philosophy, but tweaked substantially. Aristotle would say that the purpose of virtue is so that you can live a happy life. Christianity would say that the purpose of virtue is that you can live a holy life. Happiness might happen. Holiness was what you could trust in God as his gift, a sharing in divine life. So what does virtue look like in uh, what is are known as the cardinal virtues. Cardinal is a Latin word uh, based on the word for hinge, that if you can't do these four things right, hard to be virtuous in any other area of your life. The four cardinal virtues are justice, prudence, courage, and temperance. Let me go through those and explain how it is that they are elevated. Uh, The theological virtues that connect us to God faith, hope, and love. The cardinal virtues can be lived by anybody. You don't have to be a believer to be a virtuous person. The pagans were virtuous people, but they were directed at at happiness in this world because they didn't have a conception of where uh, virtue would lead. But in the Old and the New Testament, the best way to understand what it means to walk in the way of God to walk in the ways of God, to follow Jesus, Jesus is to first of all, um, be just. Give to God what it is due. So he's due worship. And so you go to Mass on Sunday. God is due your love. So you read the scriptures uh, and uh, you stay close to the sacraments of confession and you live a virtu- virtuous life. It's because justice is right relationship to God and right relationship to other people. And so it's giving God and others what they due. St. Thomas Aquinas would call it the right order of love. You love God with all your heart, your soul, your being, and you love your neighbor as yourself, which means you first, you have to learn how to love yourself and to love your neighbor like you love yourself. So you don't tell your kids to smoke cigarettes and take drugs um, just because you do, because you're not loving either. You don't do it and then tell your kids not to do it because you're not loving yourself appropriately. Love yourself like you love your kids. This is justice. Prudence is about having right judgment. It's about thinking things through and within the context of your life, making good decisions that are both about preparing for retirement, care of your children, but also about uh, care of the poor because... Jesus talks about almsgiving in the world to come. Courage in the Old Testament and in our understanding of virtue, isn't the momentary rush where you throw yourself in a battle headlong. Courage is patient, endurance, and trial. And it might mean that in combat, you're there with with your outfit and you're hanging in there covering them while they cover you. That's an experience of courage. But courage could also be standing up for the right thing in your family, your place of work, patiently enduring what might happen. You can't bully people into being better people. You can't bomb people into a higher rationality. But you can endure about that which is important in your life, which is love of God and love of neighbor. And that leaves temperance. Temperance is about moderation. And temperance is always situational. A field hand would eat one kind of a meal at noon and not call it gluttony because he's going to work hard that afternoon. Someone with a more sedentary lifestyle, it might be a salad because their requirements are different. And so temperance looks different within the context of, your, of their lives. Temperance is avoiding addiction, making something, putting something into the place in your life that only God is supposed to have. So whether it's... Uh, drinking, or drugs, or sex, or money, or whatever it is. Um, Temperance is putting everything which is good in itself into its right place. So I want to pull this all together, this talk of virtue, connecting us to the life of uh, God through faith, hope, and charity. Pius XI proclaimed the Feast of Christ the King in 1925. Do you know it's John XXIII that moved the Feast from the end of October to the end of the liturgical year. There was about 30 plus years that separated the pontificates of Pius XI and John XXIII. And in that period of time was the Second World War, the death camps, the gulag, all the horrors of the 20th century. When John uh, the 23rd opened the Second Vatican Council, he said that there were people who told him not to do it because the world was in such bad shape. Um, there were so many dark things going on, just like when Pius XI proclaimed the Feast of Christ the King. Uh, the 20th century was a dark time. And John the 23rd said, "'Better to preach hope, better pre- pre- preach faith and charity.'" Preach the truth is the best way to combat error. There wasn't any point in really talking about why the communists were wrong or the Nazis were wrong or secularism is wrong or nationalism is wrong. Mostly they're not listening. So you have to hold up the banner of the cross. This is what we do as Christians, and we do it when we live our lives in faith, hope, and charity, and in a virtuous way with justice, prudence, temperance, and courage. And so Christ the King is coming back. He'll judge the whole world. The real opium of the people is to believe that you will not be judged, that no one has called you account for what you did right and wrong with the gifts that God gave each one of us. Let's be generous with our gifts to one another, especially our gift of speech, our gift of thought, our gift of action, that we might follow Jesus, walk in his ways, and live lives of virtue. God bless you until next time. Please remember me in your prayers, and I'll remember you in mine. This has been Father John, and this has been another edition of Oro Valley Catholic.